Good morning. I'm Stephanie, and I'll be reading the text today. We're reading from Hebrews 11, 23 to 31. You can follow along in your Bibles, in the YouVersion app, or my favorite is just looking up on the screen. And this is the ESV version. Hebrews 11, 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Thanks, Stephanie. Good morning. Uh, my name's Claude. Me and my wife are the lead pastors here, as she mentioned earlier, and uh, excited to continue in the series uh, called Farsighted. And this morning, uh, the message is entitled Choice, Choice. And uh, have you ever had uh, a day where it just feels like the world is conspiring against you? <laughs> um, just like literally everything seems to go incredibly wrong. I've actually had probably several of those days if I really recount the, the length and the breadth of my life. Um, but there was one day in particular that really stuck out to me as I was considering uh, sharing with you this morning. And uh, it happened while I was in college. I, um, I went to a Bible college, and uh, as I w- was in the, my first year of that Bible college, th- my first semester, I had a... Um, a professor that was on furlough from the mission field. And so if you aren't attached to any type of Bible school or something, that might sound kind of weird, but he was a professor of one of my courses while he was home, and then he went back on the mission field over the summer. And so I returned my sophomore year, and um, I find that I have a way lower grade in the class that he taught than I should have. And so I was looking at the transcript and everything. I was super confused. Uh, I tried to have a conversation over the summer, and it didn't work out. I wasn't too worried about it. I figured I'd resolve it when I got there. Um, It said that my paper, one paper in particular, wasn't turned in. But I had it, and it was right in front of me. It was stamped when it was received, all of that. And so I went to the admissions, uh, not the admissions, the the registrar either. I can't remember the name of what he is, and I didn't write it down. Um, The what? My advisor, we'll go with that. Uh, and so I went in to the academic dean. Boom, nailed it. And, uh, and so um, I go in and I show him the paper. I was like, listen, like, I, I got this grade. It says that it's missing. I don't know why it's missing. Like, it's right here. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, well, if your professor said it's missing, then it's missing. And I was like, well, let's just call that professor. Oh, we can't. He's back on the mission field. Like, wow, well, that's bad for him. Um, How does that affect me? Like, obviously, I have it here. It's stamped. And they're like, no, the only person that can change the grade is the professor. And I was like, that is incredible. What are you talking about? Like, so what does that mean? They're like, the grade's already, uh, you know, input, and it's just a done deal. There's nothing you can do unless that professor 
makes the change. I said, how do I contact him? Well, he's in a sensitive country, <laughs> which means like he's in a country where his life could be in danger if he's exposed because he's trying to preach the gospel in, uh, in a country where that is not okay. And as the conversation continued, I was starting to think, it's a risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> Like, let's, uh, let's out this guy because I paid for this class. Like, what in the world? And so I start to get pretty furious, and it, it becomes very apparent that it's just that's the way it is. Like, um, you know, a break in the system. I don't know. I got a whole mess of apologies, and we understand your frustration and all this stuff, but it just is what it is. I was furious, but I was just trying to remain composed. And so I thought, okay, that's fine. Like, whatever, you know. So I go back uh, to my room, and the whole time I'm, I'm just getting more and more angry. And I'm just trying to, like, internalize it all and push it down and be like, it's just a grade. It doesn't matter. It's fine. I mean, that guy's out in the country somewhere risking his life. Lord, your will be done. No. Um, and uh, I just, I, I'm so frustrated and angry. And I go back, and I'm, I'm going to call my my parents to, to just kind of let them in on the loop. And so I call them and I remember exactly where I was. I call them and uh, my mom answers the phone and she's like, hey. And I was like, hey, you know that grade and the whole issue that I thought I could resolve when I got here? She's like, yeah. She's like, I can't. She's like, what do you mean? And so I explained the whole thing and she's like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. So I have something to tell you. I'm like, okay. She's like, um, you know how when you left you said that like, if Jenny, my younger sister, wanted to like use your car while you were at college, that she could go ahead and use it. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, she accidentally drove it into a swamp. I was like, accidentally drove it into a swamp? I was like, are you kidding? She's like, no. I was like, so is she okay? And she's like, yeah, yeah, no, she's fine. I mean, she, she feels really bad. And I was like, oh, so how's the car? She's like, well... Yeah, you don't have a car anymore. I was like, what? Well, she's going to have to pay for that, right? Well, I mean, I guess you could try to have her pay for it, but it's like kind of getting blood from a rock. Like, she's not going to be able to do anything about it. She doesn't have her own vehicle, so it's just, it's just kind of the way it is. I was like, Mom, do you realize the irony of this moment? I'm telling you, that's just what I experienced, and now you're telling me the same thing about my vehicle. And she's like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Like, Oh my gosh. She's like, it's just, there's really nothing we can do about it. <laughs> I was so incredibly angry, five hours away from my family. So it's not even like I could go in and yell at them or anything. I said, can I talk to Jenny? She's like, well, she's at work. I was like, well, tell her to get another job or four more jobs or something because something needs to be done. And she's like, oh, she feels so bad. I was like, it's fine. It's fine. It's just a car. I'm glad she's safe. And she's like, all right, I'll let her know you said that. And I'm just kind of pushing down the anger, pushing down the anger. And these, this, all this happened within a matter of probably an hour. Um, I hang up the phone, and I literally think, it can't get worse, right? Like, the day cannot possibly get any worse. My grades, my vehicle, whatever. Like, if, if I had a dog, I'd be concerned for its life. You know, it's that type of thing. And so I start walking uh, to, the, um, to the mail room because usually when you're in college, if you want to be cheered up or something, you go to the mail room and hope that somebody remembers that you exist on the world. <laughs> and like, oh my gosh, I got mail. <laughs> oh, wrong box. Anyway, um, so I just w walked over and I go to the, the mail room and I open up my mailbox and I have a ticket in there. And I'm thinking, why is there a ticket in my mail? Like, I don't understand. I don't have a vehicle here. <laughs> 
So how could I have possibly gotten a ticket for a vehicle that was just destroyed? And so I'm like, well, whatever. I'm just going to go bring this over to the uh, registrar and, uh, and resolve this. Like, it's obviously a mistake. So I bring it over. I walk over. I turn it and I go, hey, I accidentally got this in the mail. And it's got my name on it, but it's clearly not a ticket for me. And they're like, um, yeah, no, that's a ticket for you. And I was like, well, it's weird because if you get a ticket usually about where you park, it's usually on the vehicle that you've parked there. And so the fact you had to mail it to me indicates there is no vehicle there. And she's like, well, according to our records, um, we put the ticket on your vehicle and you never paid it. I was like, I don't have a vehicle here. Well, it doesn't have to be your vehicle for you to get the ticket. You parked someone's vehicle in an illegal spot. I was like, I didn't park anybody's vehicle anywhere. I don't know what you're talking about. And so we're kind of going back and forth. And all of a sudden, I feel myself starting to like get all the rage that was stored up. You ever been there? Right? You guys are like, no. Oh, my gosh. You're like, I'm there right now. <laughs> start punching the person in the back of the head in front of you. That would be weird. Um, so I, I start kind of getting all of this frustration. I can feel it sort of bubbling over. And then I literally look at her. I'm like, listen, I'm sorry. This, this isn't your fault. This is clearly a misunderstanding. Why in the world would I get a ticket for a vehicle that I do not own? Who, who bases the, these tickets? Like, who said it was Claude? Did the person say, Claude drove my vehicle? Because I'd love to know that vehicle. I'd love to have a conversation with that person. And they said, well, hold on. And so they look it up and they go, no, someone said that they saw you getting out of the driver's side of this vehicle. I was like, just somebody said it was me. And they're like, yeah. I was like, is there anyone else named Claude in this entire school? She's like, no. I was like, it wasn't me. It was in a girl's dorm where I'm not even allowed to park. It's a girl's only dorm area. I was like, I'm not even allowed to park in that lot. She goes, I know that's why you got the ticket. It's like, I'm going to kill you. And so I'm literally looking. I was like, but I didn't park there. She's like, I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do. Oh, sweet glory. And so I'm like, there's literally, so what does this mean? And she goes, you owe us $20. I was like, $20? Like, for not doing something? She goes, well, it started at 10, now it's at 20. If you don't pay it today, it's going to go to 40. I was like, I'm going to murder someone. And so I was like, I, I don't even know if I have that kind of money. Like, I'm in college. I'm broke as a joke. And so I pull out my wallet. There's a $20 bill, a single $20 bill. I was like, this is all I own in the world. I was like, I really have to pay this. She goes, you can pay it and then argue it later. I was like, well, I've done that with my grades, and it doesn't work. So basically, I just have to pay you and bite the bullet. She's like, yeah. I was like, all right, I'm giving you these $20, and I'm letting you know that I'm going to take something that I deem worth $20 from this school. And she's like, excuse me? And I was like, I am at the end of my rope and I am viewing this as me purchasing something from you. So once I come in contact with something I like and I think it's worth $20, I'm taking it. And I put it down and slide it over and she's like, uh, okay. And so she takes it and signs all the paperwork and I take it and I'm walking out of the administration building and I am just, I'm like shaking because I'm just pushing down all this anger. Like I'm fine. I'm fine. I can just pretend like there's nothing going on. And so I walk right out. And as I walk out, I look and I double look and I think, I wonder what those parking signs are worth. And all the rage that I was holding down 
came out in a brilliant, horrifying, embarrassing moment as I saw a sign that said reserved parking for president. And I thought, he's to blame. (laughs) He's to blame for it all. I have a poor grade because of the setup that he has created. I don't have my vehicle here because I can't have my vehicle here until the second semester of my sophomore year of rule that I can blame on him. And, uh, He has somehow orchestrated some devious plan to ensure that I get this ticket. Everything in the world is this man's fault, and I think that sign's worth $20. So I walked over, and I grabbed this sign, and I start to, like, try to unscrew it, and I'm, like, shaking, and I'm losing my mind. Like, I'm literally, like, it's broad daylight, and there's people walking by in the quad, and I'm trying to take the screws off, and people are looking at me like, what is he doing? And it's so tight, I couldn't possibly get it off, and so in all of my rage and fury, I grab this sign and I pull it up with all my might and I pull a foot and a half block of concrete straight up out of the yard and I grab this sign and put it on my shoulder and walk a block and a half to my apartment. (laughs) It was not my proudest moment. Although people were looking at me like a superhero (laughs) as I was literally just walking there like, no one say anything. He might kill you. And I may have. I have no idea. I still have the sign. um, And uh, (laughs) I do. And uh, recently one of my roommates became the president of that college. And so I kind of texted him and said, hey, man, I've got your parking sign, just so you know. But I bought it fair and square. Anyway... (laughs) I was devastated when I went back to the room, when I finally came down from my anger and frustration, because I was like, what in the world just happened? Like, why would I, it's literally in my, it's laying across my room and people are laughing hysterically. And I'm thinking, I don't want that type of like encouragement right now. I don't know what just went wrong. Like, what have I done? It was like this, this moment where I realized I didn't like what came out of me. And when, when anger really bubbled up and bubbled over, I didn't like what came out. So I want to ask you this. What's your response when life turns upside down? What's your response when life turns upside down? You have a response. And for maybe some of you, you're kind of like, no, I'm all good. I'm fine. And that was for the first two interactions. <laughs> but at some point, It kind of is revealed, whether we like it or not. What's your response when life turns upside down? Most of us, if we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, we'll look to blame someone or something other than ourselves. It's just the reality of humanity. It's not about being a Christian, a good Christian, or a poor Christian. It's just the fact that as human beings, Christian or not, when we come to a place where our life is turned upside down, we want to blame. We want to find someone that we can direct all of our anger, all of our frustration, all of our heartache, whatever it might be. We might take responsibility for something that has been undeniably done by us. But for the most part, even that will be in the context of responding to someone or something else. I mean, yeah, I did that, but it was because of this. I mean, I I did do that. I'll own it. As long as you realize the reason I'll own that is because of this. 
heartache, this pain, that time, that person, you name it. We want to shift blame. Quite frankly, it's just easier to be the victim. And it doesn't mean that we want to be victimized. And I realize that in some cases, we really are truly the victim. And so I'm not in any way belittling those of us that have been victimized by others. I just realize that it's easier to be a victim than to take responsibility. But hear this, victim or not, how we respond reveals us. Victim or not, how we respond in moments reveals us. It reveals who we are. I once heard a brilliant woman say <laughs> that, that grief reveals us. Meredith, whether that was something that originated with you or that you were quoting someone else, the reality is it's true. In brokenness, the facade comes down. We're revealed for who we are. Whether it's grief, whether it's anger, frustration, you name it, in those moments where we're confronted with our world being shaken or turned upside down, it reveals us. Years ago, I watched a, a show, I can't remember the name of it, um, but it was, it was about special forces training. And this one in particular episode was about uh, the Navy SEALs training, and, and it was just incredible to me. I, I loved watching those episodes when they would come out. And I remember one moment in particular is they were just, just punishing these men and women. I mean, just relentless at any moment that they weren't being physically just abused. They were being emotionally and verbally accosted. It was incredible, absolutely incredible. And I remember one of the officers saying something like this, very simply and plain, said the principle simple. You get an orange and you squeeze it, orange juice comes out. You get a lemon, you squeeze it, lemon juice comes out. We're just squeezing them to see who they really are. We want to see what comes out when we squeeze them enough. Man, that stuck with me. That principle stuck with me. We can declare to be people of faith. We can say that we're people of, of love and hope. But when life squeezes us, when everything is kind of crashing down, when it's pushing in on all sizes, when on all sides, when hurt, when pain, when disappointment, they strip away the public version of who we are and what comes out. Are we faithless? Are we without love? Vindictive, resentful, angry? Are we hopeless? People that declare that we're full of hope, are we, in those moments, are we hopeless? Are we slowly crushed while pointing a finger of blame to justify what's being revealed? Hmm. Not super cheery, right? But it's the reality of humanity. Who you really are will be revealed in some of your darkest or most painful moments. Verse 23 of this morning's text starts to talk about some people that were revealed. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
Now, you have to understand a little bit of context of the Old Testament, and the author does that a lot in Hebrews, as we've talked about before. What's happening right now in the, the birth years of Moses is that the Pharaoh is getting nervous. Uh, the Israelites are a slave nation being enslaved by uh, the Egyptians, and the Pharaoh is getting nervous because of the size of the Israelites. They continue to have more children, and he's saying they're becoming a mighty nation. And they'll overthrow us. And so he does this, this edict that says, from now on, all the nursemaids that are Egyptians that are present with the Israelite women giving birth, when they have a boy, kill him. We want no more boys in this nation. Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. And the edict carries with it a death sentence. Punishment for the parents as well as the nursemaid. And so we have here Moses being born, a male, during this edict. And what happens is his parents were not afraid. His parents were faced with faith and a decision. They were people of faith. They were people that believed in God and they had this decision to make. And it's interesting that it says, the end of that verse and they were not afraid of the king's edict. How is that possible? How is it possible? Some might say that maybe they just didn't care about life. But there's no indication in scripture that they had thrown in the towel on life. They were not afraid. If you remember, the beginning of the verse implies the outcome of why. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So by faith, his parents were not afraid. By faith, being farsighted, not consumed by the nearsighted now, not looking at the consequences on the earthly level of the decisions that had to be made, just knowing what was right, they did something against the Pharaoh's edict. What we learn from this is this. Faith causes people to overcome fear. Faith actually has the ability to overcome fear. And I don't mean faith in the sense of like, hmm, I have faith. I believe in Jesus. Hey, you gotta have faith. I don't mean like some cheesy one-line or whatever. I'm talking about faith in the context of being farsighted. Remember the name of the series and the journey that we're on. The idea that the right now doesn't define, but that by that which I do not see, that which is in the future, that which God has whispered to my heart and to my mind, I'm choosing to see that instead of right now. And so, if we think about that being revealed, they made a choice to act on what God was leading them to do, even if it cost them their life. Ultimately, it didn't cost them their life. In fact, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and decides that she wants to adopt this little Israelite baby. And if you know the, the story at all, I'll explain it real quick. Basically, Moses' mother was selected to be the nursemaid for Moses. And so she actually cares for her own son as he grows old. And we pick up the story again in a couple minutes. But Moses, his life is spared. And ultimately, his life is the way that God sets the entire nation of Israel free. Why? Because his parents were faithful when faced with fear. We become anxious and fearful when we're uncertain of the outcome of the situation. 
That's the reality of it. If you don't know how it ends, you're nervous. You're anxious. You're a little bit afraid. Like, if I say, I'm going to scare you. I'm going to scare you. Here I come. I'm going to scare you. Boo! Were you scared? You're like, you're an idiot. Do you not know how this works? Right? There, there's the element of the unexpected. There's the thing that, that, oh my goodness, and it jolts you. And all of a sudden, you're undone by it in the moment. And it reveals that you're afraid. I can't tell you how many times people have said, if I knew how this would end, if I just had a guarantee of how this would end, then... I'd be okay. I'd be okay. We recently have been watching Star Wars. Um, for whatever reason, I really have no explanation for it. Um, but I hadn't watched them, and we decided, like all of them, you know what I mean? And so we decided we would watch them kind of in sequence of their release dates. And so we watched episode four, five, and six, and then we're watching the new ones, one, two, and three, or whatever. And as we're watching them, there's this moment where, and I'm not like, a Star Warsy person. So if I say a name wrong or whatever, just you don't have to be like, actually, it's not a lightsaber, it's a lightsaber. You know, like, okay, whatever. Uh, in either case, because I've been corrected that way. So the shiny sticks they use as swords. There, now everybody can be horrified. Um, the, uh, there's, a, there's this fight scene where uh, Anakin Skywalker is fighting with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it's like, you're on the edge of your seat, like you're thinking, oh my gosh, one of them's gonna die, this is crazy. Unless you've watched the Star Wars in the order in which they've released, and then you realize, oh, they're both gonna survive this. And so it's interesting, when you know they're gonna survive it, all of a sudden you're like, oh, you just watch it. Like it just eliminates all the fear, all the anxiety, and all of a sudden you're just watching these people, and they're like, oh, bzz. you're like, yeah, you're gonna be fine. <laughs> you're like, oh no, he might die. Like, no, nah, I don't know how, but he'll live. You know, <laughs> it seems impossible, but we're good because we see him in the next one. You know, it's amazing how when we know the outcome of something, our anxiety and our fear it just comes down. So listen, Christians. We know how it ends for us. We know how it ends for us. The problem is we get lulled to sleep with this world and we think this is what matters. We think, oh, but how is this going to, how is, yeah, but if you're farsighted, if you see beyond the now, then you know God's working all things together for good. That even when people hurt you, even when you're broken, that God's redeeming those moments. Why? Because we know the end. We know the end, and that seems like, yeah, but, but do we really know the end of this situation in this circumstance? I'll tell you what, it's that type of faith that empowers the Apostle Paul to say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It says that in Philippians. It's not because he was suicidal. It's because he was speaking the faith that he possessed into the world that he lived in. And he was saying, listen, I know how this ends. And so I'm going to live for Christ. But if it costs me my life, I still win. And so I'm going to continue with the faith. Not because he was superhuman, not because he was divine, because he was neither. He was a broken human being that had just had a confrontation with the truth of the gospel that awoke in his heart and transformed who he was. He sat idly by as the church was persecuted. He murdered people that professed Christ only to be one of the greatest missionaries of all time. He was an imperfect, broken person that had to declare out loud, I know the way this 
story ends. And so I'm putting it in perspective. Know the ending, so I'm free from the now. Scripture goes on, verse 24 through 25, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Listen, farsighted people, being farsighted provides perspective on the fleeting pleasures of sin. They're fleeting pleasures that ultimately lead to, to guilt, to destruction, to shame, to brokenness. The consequences of sin, ultimately, Scripture says, is death. He chose not to pursue stature. He was the Pharaoh's grandson by adoption. He could have taken a position of authority and power and declared anything he wanted would, was at his discretion, at his fingertips. But he chose not to have the fleeting pleasures of sin, not to pursue stature, not to submit to the culture he was immersed in. It's so counterintuitive especially if you realize that he was a human being. It's interesting that Scripture chooses the word that begins in verse 25. It says, choosing. Choosing. Rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's a choice. It's a choice. You can blame you can point fingers, you can give all the reasons, but it's a choice. At the end of the day, we choose. We choose. Verse 26 says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Looking to the reward, meaning looking to the end, to the eternity with God. The thing that I find interesting in the text, if you're Reading this at face value, they're talking about a story of Moses that happened in the Old Testament. And it's saying he chose the reproach of Christ. <laughs> How in the world did he choose the reproach of Christ before Christ walked on the earth? Reading it at face value, it's kind of confusing. Unless you connect the, the meta-narrative of what the author has been weaving together throughout Hebrews as a whole. And then you realize this, that Moses' decision to choose obedience to God and persecution over the fleeting pleasures of sin was pointing forward to one greater than Moses. The author's telling us that Moses' obedience set a nation free, but Christ's obedience set humanity free. And if we'll allow it, it will transform us. Transform us. Because Christ paid the price that we deserve. And if we'll embrace the reality of our own brokenness and allow God's forgiveness and grace to be extended towards us, it will literally transform us from the inside out. We'll be sanctified. Immediate and ongoing sanctification. The Holy Spirit will do a work in us and it will be evident by the fruit of our lives. In fact, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, Scripture says that we will bear fruit, and that fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Not something we can fake. And I know that there's a lot of people that try to, to fake 
a good response in the midst of a broken moment, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be a good Christian, you know. I'm not going to be angry. Only my kids hear me cuss. You know, you're like, what? (laughs) Yeah, only the neighbors realize how devious I really am because of the things I break, you know. I'm not talking about conjuring something fake that we can't maintain. I'm talking about an authentic outflow as God transforms us. I'm talking about when, when life squeezes us, what is the fruit of our lives that's revealed? When the now begins to push in on all sides, Galatians 5.22 through 23 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Does that come out? As life is squeezing in, does patience come out? Because I'll tell you right now, you can't fake patience. <laughs> You'll be like, I'm so patient right now. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Let's just wait. I just want to wait. Yeah. <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> you can't fake that stuff. That's the beauty and also some of the the tension of living a, a Christ-following life is that we con- we're constantly confronted with the brokenness of who we are. And if we would just realize who it is that God is and what it is that he's done for us and the transformation that God was patient with us and we allow the patience that God has for us to settle in our hearts and minds and we look and say, God, would you make me slow to anger, quick to love? Would you continue the sanctifying process? God, would you come in and and shine light into the dark areas of my life? That instead of anger, that I would exude some kindness, some joy, that people would see love flow out of me. When it's counterintuitive, when it makes absolutely no sense, when they should get anger and resentment and unforgiveness, instead they see peace and joy and love. Not because I'm a lunatic, that's like out of touch with reality. I'm talking about the kind of peace that passes all understanding, that in the middle of a waiting room in a hospital, there's tears streaming down someone's face because they're broken and they're hurt, but they say, I know God's at work. I know God's at work. That's peace that passes all understanding. You feel the pain, but you're not going anywhere. Because you know farsighted faith says God's at work. What's your response when life turns upside down? What comes out in the squeezing? Do you like what life is revealing about you? Because the choice is yours. You may be tempted to say, well, listen, I'm a, I'm a lemon, you know? I can't, I can't change into an orange. Like, it just is what it is. Like, I'm bad fruit. You don't understand, Claude, the things I've done, the way I was raised, blame, blame, point, point. Hmm. Fruit of my life is already determined, you might be tempted to say. And I would say that sounds like the words of a victim declaring a lie over their life. Because check this out. Verse 31 says this, by faith... Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. 
Other translations say, did not perish with those who were unbelievers. There's an indication here that Rahab the prostitute somehow became a believer. Well, how in the world is that possible? How in the world could such bad fruit be redeemed? You see, up until now, the author has focused on people that we may expect to be on the list of faithful people. But Rahab, she's a non-Israelite woman. It's a big deal. Because not only is she a non-Israelite, she's a Canaanite. And Canaanites, they were not buddies with the Israelites. So she is an enemy of Israel who was a prostitute and a liar. She was bad fruit, if you will. And she, in the midst of her sin, was motivated by faith. Now, if you think God is so small that he only speaks to Christians, the story of Rahab will mess with your theology. Because Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, says this. It captures the words of Rahab. She's speaking to the Israelite spies and says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond Jordan and Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then, get this. For the Lord, your God, he is God. In the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In her brokenness, she declares their God is the only true God. She has an encounter that transforms her faith in this moment. She's face to face with spies that have scaled a wall and are in Jericho and they're about to destroy Jericho and she is declaring to them that their God is the one true God. A woman who is broken, steeped in sin, has every reason and excuse to actually look at the moment as an amazing opportunity to profit off of turning in two spies that everyone's afraid of. She doesn't do that. Her bad fruit, faith, was oriented towards the future. Her faith was oriented towards the future. She realized that their God was the one true God. And the trajectory of her life was changed that moment. That moment, everything changed for her. She saw what God was doing and made a choice It's amazing. I think of all the different stories that we read about in this chapter of faith, the story of Rahab is the one that should probably shake us the most because she's the easiest to identify with. Like, wait, she was all jacked up? She was broken? She was a mess? Okay, tell me more, you know? She saw what God was doing and made a choice. She had so many reasons to count herself out. If she would have turned in the spies, there would have been a reward in it for her. But she chose to be led by God. She made a choice and came to faith. Her life and the entire trajectory of her life was changed. It actually says in Joshua 
that she was counted amongst the Israelites from that day forward. That's a big deal. The story doesn't end there for Rahab. Rahab actually marries an Israelite man. She marries into one of the tribes of Israel called Judah. And Judah is the tribe that every king of Israel derives from. A Canaanite prostitute, liar, steeped in her sin, has an awakening moment and declares with faith that their God is the one true God and suddenly she's the mother of kings. But we hear more about Rahab in the Bible. Matthew chapter 1, verse 15 talks about Rahab by name in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I love it. I'm actually getting emotional over it. Because you know what? Jesus could have come from this nice, tidy, stable, amazing lineage of perfect people that never did anything wrong, that somehow were above all the fray, that in the midst of the brokenness of the world, everybody in Jesus' family was perfect, you know? But that's not the reality. The reality is that if you trace back the genealogy of Christ, there's some messed up people that just chose to be faithful when they were confronted with the opposite. Hers is a story of faith, yes, but it's also a story of choice and a story of redemption. And it's our story. It's our story. She didn't have some superpowered strength. She had an awareness of who God was and that transformed her from the inside in. Do you, from the inside out, do you have an awareness of God? If you have an awareness of God and, and a willingness to say, God, would you transform my everything? Would you give me better perspective on the now? Would you help me to rise above and be farsighted in the midst of the pain of this? The word of God promises that he'll transform you, that the work of his spirit will do a work that you can't do in yourself. So what is God leading you to do? What crossroads are you at in your life? So you can make excuses You can point fingers. You can even lie. You can lie that you can never change. The gospel says you can. The gospel of Jesus Christ says he's not done. The the work that he's begun in you is not yet finished. What will you choose? We say every week that the text requires something from us and This morning, it's no different. The strength to move through situations and circumstances are not something that we can conjure up from ourselves, but they begin from an origin moment where we choose to say, I'm going to continue to follow you, Lord. And it's Jesus that provides strength in our darkest moments. It's what it is that he has done that transforms our everyday. And so the question I want to ask you as you leave this place this morning, the application that I want you to consider is this. I want you to ask yourself, what will I act on this week because God is leading me? What will I act on this week because God is leading me? Maybe for some of you this morning, the thing that you need to act on is the surrender of your life. 
You need to stop playing the game or fooling whoever you think you might be fooling because at the end of the day, it will be revealed. In the pain of a moment, in the brokenness of something, there will be something revealed. And so today could be the day where you just say, Lord, I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life and cross that line of salvation. That could be the action that God is leading you to. For others of us in this room, if you've crossed that line of faith and you consider the application this morning of what it is that that you could act on because God is leading you, maybe there's a God risk. Maybe there's a God risk that's going to require your comfort, that's going to require your known, your safety, the, the, the little cute story that you're trying to create, all the while delusional about a bigger story that's being written in and through your lives if you'll just take the God risk. I don't pretend to know what it is. What do you need to act on? Do you need to forgive somebody because of what God has forgiven you of? Do you need to extend some patience where you've wanted your timeline? This morning, do you need to act in a way of generosity, whether that means with your time, your talent, or your treasure, to take a risk and say, okay, God, It's all yours anyway. I don't know. But I know the text requires something of you. And I know that the Holy Spirit is faithful enough to be whispering it to your heart and mind even now. It's time to act on some things. Because people of faith are people that act. They do. Religious people gather and hear. And then do nothing with what it is they've heard. Christ followers being transformed by the truth of the gospel say, I've come to this place, I've heard truth, and now I'm sent to do something that God's calling me to do. What will you do? Maybe if you're sitting here saying, listen, I live my life that way, maybe it's a spiritual conversation with someone that you know needs to hear truth. The invitation of someone to to this place or to another Bible-preaching place where they can be confronted with the truth of the gospel. I don't know, but I know it's time we act. That we do something with what we know. If you would bow your heads and, and close your eyes, and I ask you simply to close your eyes so you're not distracted. If you want to leave them open, you can. As the team comes forward, I want to just pray a quick prayer with you, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal what it is that God might be asking you to, to act on. Lord, we come before you this morning And we're thankful for who you are and what it is that you've done in and through our lives. The divine appointment that even is today. Lord, I thank you for the stories of people's faithfulness that it might inspire us, but the reality that their faith means nothing without that which you have done. And so God, we rest in who you are. And we move to action because of the confidence and assurance we have that you are who you say you are and you've done what only you can do, that you paid a price we could not pay and we're forever changed as a result. And so we simply declare ourselves available, declaring that we will act as you lead us. So God, would you speak? Would you lead? Would you guide? 